death, eternal punishment for anyone who opens this casket. The mummy, is it dead or alive? Human or inhuman? You'll know, you'll see, you'll feel the awful, creeping, crawling terror that stands your hair on end and brings a scream to your lips. Welcome to another episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Uh, it's the show where, well, I'm the titular Sean. I'm the very titular Carrie. And this is the show that brings you uh, a close look, a deep dive into the unbelievable, the unexplainable, the spooky and the bizarre, and, well, we try to find an answer. Carrie, how successful have we been so far at finding definitive answers? I don't know. I think we've solved most of these mysteries, to be honest. Yeah, no, we're, we're super sleuths of a sort. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as you heard in that little intro there, uh, well, last week we jumped back to the 1990s with Princess Diana conspiracy theories. Uh, this week we're going a little further back, aren't we, Carrie? We are. This week, we're going to be talking about a subject out of ancient Egypt. Ooh, one of our favorites. Mm-hmm, because earlier this year, pre-pandemic even, we both really got into this great course that's available on Audible about ancient Egypt. Yeah, that's a uh, great course is TM. That's not Carrie uh, yeah. just describing <laughs> it's it. It's a great course. Great. It was great, but... <laughs> yeah, so this great course, which, of course, I'm going to plug and say you can enjoy it for free at our link at audibletrial.com slash scary, is presented by Bob Breyer, who is one of the world's premier Egyptologists and coincidentally works out of my college alma mater. Mm-hmm. But you never got to take a class with him while you were there, right? No, I was so heartbroken that I had never been able to fit the course in because I had like... I had both an honors course load and I was doing film stuff, which was a lot of out of class activities. So I just never had the time for it. Um, but it was one of my great regrets of college. I always wanted to take it. Yeah. Um, Audible's not giving me any extra money or anything to say <laughs> this, but but seriously, this great course thing was the, it was a credit, right? Like a book? Yeah. And it felt like a college credit. It felt like you learned the whole semester. And I'm sure it's hit or miss with whoever hosts it, just like professors. But just imagine like the most passionate professor that you had in school that made you love something. And maybe you didn't even have interest in that subject before. But that was this course for me. He was amazing. He was like Dan Carlin or something. We like yes. laughed at his speech patterns in a mm-hmm. friendly we way. We still quote him. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, he's, now, Horam Heb, he's a military man. <laughs> yeah. He's a military man. How do you become the pharaoh by marrying the right woman? Uh, <laughs> these are things he repeats over and over again. Uh, uh, but he's love him. Uh, I actually sent him an email, by the way, just thanking him. Oh. And he, he emailed me right back. Such a sweet guy. So... Anyway, we're not just trying to get you to try Audible. Um, no, that that's genuinely for you because this is like 30-something <laughs> hours of content and it's all fascinating. Uh, sounds as dry as a mummy, but it is not. It is it's super interesting. It's really political. It's all the good stuff. And Egypt, Egyptian history is always partially the story of Egyptology because putting the, the historical record together from so few written sources and stuff, it's, just, it's all just interesting. It's great. Um, that said, <laughs> Carrie, what, what are we focusing on this week? Because none of this sounds uh, particularly spooky so far. Well, today, Sean, I will be discussing the curse of... Of King Tut's tomb. (laughs) 
someday we'll have sound effects. <laughs> Ooh. Oh, is that the scarab? Yes. We're talking about King Tut's curse. Um, so like you said about marrying the knowledge of ancient Egyptian history with Egyptology, that's kind of what this course helped do to me because I came in the other way, which was I was obsessed with mummies as a kid because I was a freaking weirdo. <laughs> My yeah. big things were mummies and the Titanic, and I could spout off facts to people. I was like, you want to hear something about mummies? They used to pull brains out of their noses. You also loved Frankenstein, right? Was it just anything Karloff portrayed? Anything very uh, very ramrod straight with its arms outstretched. Whoa. <laughs> anyway. Um, yeah, so back back when I was a kid, Everything about mummies and ancient Egyptian mythology was just the coolest thing in the world. I learned my name in hieroglyphics. I couldn't tell you how to do it now. The course tells you how to do it. And I became fascinated with King Tut. So do you know who Tutankhamun is? And just give a brief overview because you also listened to this course. So I don't want you to spoil too much of the good stuff. Well, I'm not sure if you mean Tutankhamun or <laughs> Tutankhaten, Carrie. Oh, but, excuse me. Uh, because, of course, that's the name he was born with. Um, no, he was a boy king. Mm-hmm. Um, much who, like our dog, Poe. Yes, much like our dog, Poe, who, <laughs> who is often called King Tut. Because he is a boy king. Right. Uh, I believe... And correct me if I'm wrong, it's been a while since we listened to that course. Um, he was born in Babylonia, and then he moved to Arizona. King Tut. <laughs> I believe he lived in a condo made of stona. <laughs> yes, I think those are all correct. Um, no, his discovery and touring around the world and stuff, um, which is kind of what Steve Martin was parodying a little mm-hmm. bit, of the resurgence of the Egyptomania in the 70s, right? Mm-hmm. Um Well, that was because Tut was taking a trip around the world at that point. So people were freaking out. They all wanted to see it because he hadn't toured in a long time. Right. But there was a (laughs) first. He's fucking Elvis or something. Yeah. But there was a first (laughs) round of like Egyptomania in the 30s when he was first found. Oh, I'll talk all about that. But yeah, that that really ignited it. And then, um, yeah. So every time every time he takes a spin around the globe, people get really interested again. Do you um, still get joy out of uh, Steve Martin's King Tut uh, Every song? time. I changed it <laughs> to my too. Facebook cover photo when we were like listening. We were we got deep into the weeds with the K- Steve Martin's King Tut and we were listening to this um, great course. And yeah, I think it's one of the best things ever committed to uh, the screen. He's my favorite honky. <laughs> yeah, so... When we were kids, there was kind of an Egyptology resurgence. This is the 90s um, because of movies like The Mummy coming out, which was like a big hit. And that really coincided with my initial area of interest. And that coincided with an additional interest in the paranormal with the curse on Tut's tomb. Of course. So this week, our Patreon backers voted for me to cover something paranormal, Mm -hmm. and I didn't want to dive straight back into ghosts and stuff, even though those are my favorite stories, but this is definitely under that banner. Yeah, a curse. Yeah. Um, I'm going to be discussing the curse, a bit of the history behind it, and a few other instances of purported mummy curses. Oh, that's exciting. The the Tut one is really the only one... It's the biggie, for sure. (laughs) It's the big one. You know, you play the hits when you're talking mummy curses. Oh, yeah. He's the biggie. But, um, yeah, hopefully the act of discussion doesn't make us prone to a curse, like saying Macbeth in a theater or something. Mm. 
But, you know, it's the last days of 2020, so anything's possible, right? Mummy curse, why not? Hey, at this point, I feel like a curse might be like a double negative. You know what I mean? A curse (laughs) can only be positive at this point. Yes. Kind of reverse our fortunes. Right. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. (laughs) Yes, yes, exactly. Um, yeah, so you want to you wanna dive in? You ready? Please, desperately. Uh, let's crack <laughs> this musty old tomb open. Mm. So let's start with a little backstory on our boy Tut, because I think the context really helps frame why there would be a curse and why the discovery of his remains in his tomb was such a big deal. Are we going to talk about Akhenaten? Well, I'll talk about him a little bit. It's really, this is the Tut show, really. So Because you know I'm a big Akhenaten guy. You are. Tutankhamun was born Tutankhaten, as you had mentioned before. Mm-hmm. Um, his name was changed later. Yep. Uh, beloved of the sun disk. Cool. Yeah. Circa 1342 to Akhenaten, as you mentioned, who was the current pharaoh of the 18th dynasty of Egypt's new kingdom. And I think that was like he who rules in the glory of the sun disk. Yes. And he also had changed his name a little later as well. I think there was this a kind of religious shift, and that was kind of a scandal at the time. He was the heretic pharaoh, they yeah. call him. So yeah, we'll call Tutankhamun Tut for this episode. It's just a lot easier. The identity of his mother is a bit mysterious, but could very well have been the famous Queen Nefertiti. Mm-hmm. So that's a possibility. Uh, so Tut married his sister Anksanamun. Sure. I think that's it. And that wasn't unusual for the Egyptian pharaohs. Um, Keeping that blood pure. Yeah, sure. Mm -hmm. And Tut ascended as king around age eight or nine. His dad died. As we covered in last week, um, in last week and the week before his episodes, it's not like um, keeping it close to the family was specific to Egyptians or to ancient people. No, but they sure loved it. Oh, they kept it real tight. (laughs) Super tight. Too tight. So Tut reigned for about nine years with his uh, vizier, which well, you might remember as the title Jafar had in Aladdin. If I remember my Bob Breyer correctly. Oh, boy. To Are be, you going to be doing this the whole app? To be the pharaoh in Egypt, you have to marry the uh, into the royal family. And that includes if you're the male yes. prince, you still have to marry the king's daughter. Yes, it's interesting. To become the king. So if you want your son to be pharaoh, you have to have him marry his sister. Yeah, and I think the only way you skip over that is, is if there is no daughter to marry or right. or mother, I think, sometimes. Ew. Anyway, so his vizier took on most of the decision making for the boy king because he was a child. And there's actually a rumor that this vizier, who is either A or I, I'm going to say I, had Tut murdered. Mm-hmm. Which is another story for another day, but is also the subject of a Bob Breyer book. So I definitely want to dig into that sometime. Yeah, it's a whole murder mystery <laughs> uh, uh, via Egyptology. Mm-hmm. Tut and his queen had two stillborn children, which may have been a result of their ancestral relationship. Now, he was uh, like 14? Yeah, he was young when they started having babies. Mm-hmm. But, you know, maybe those children were also killed by eye somehow right kind of the, the puppet master pulling the strings he was the, the cheney of the whole scenario yes he was a real cheney 
It's been hypothesized over the years that Tut had various health issues due to tests run on his mummy. And these may range from Marfan syndrome to gynecomastia to X-linked intellectual disability syndrome and other possible health conditions, including cleft hard palate, scoliosis, club foot, bone necrosis, and malaria, among others. Bone necrosis? Yeah. Dead bones? You can have a bone that's dead. I know. I have one in my wrist, actually. We have to talk about getting that surgery done. Yeah. <laughs> Patrons get at us. <laughs> <laughs> it's not their job. I know. Oh, America. It's possible that Tut had all or most of these problems. So he was just, he had all different kinds of issues. Mm-hmm. Not least of which, again, because his entire family had engaged in dynastic incest to preserve the bloodline. Right. They also had terrible teeth because there was sand in all their bread. Yeah, that's true. Hmm. Not as much sand in England, though. Oh, Caroline. Anyway. <laughs> Those baking people are lovely. You leave them alone. I didn't, I didn't say you anything. You leave the baking people alone. <laughs> Listen. Okay. So committing incest to preserve a bloodline tends to fuck it right up. Right. Um, but they didn't really know that at the time. Yeah, just ask a Labrador's hips. Yes. Yes, do that. So. Maybe Tut was murdered around age 18, or possibly more likely, and we'll find out when we do an episode on it, he died of one or a combination of his various medical conditions. Right. Um, There are no surviving records of the circumstances of Tut's death, and making it a bit more suspicious, I married Tut's widowed queen, his sister. You did? (laughs) Yes. I, me. (laughs) Uh, I, the evil vizier. Yes. Married her post-death and ascended to the throne himself, which, as evidenced by a secret letter, Anxenamun wrote to the king of the Hittites, was against her will. She did not want to marry this guy. So she said, she told the king of the Hittites, hey, send me one of your sons. We'll seal up this um, relationship. I don't even have to meet him. I just don't want to marry this other guy that much. Yeah, this sounds like a, a Jafar situation yeah for sure and the king sent one of his sons a prince and he mysteriously disappeared never got there so um he could have been another of i's victims interesting Mm -hmm. again we'll get into that later but this eye's got his shit on lockdown is the important thing (laughs) to note here yes tut was nonetheless dead the 18th dynasty was over and i this guy not me became king Considering Tut's status as a pharaoh, he was buried in an unusually small tomb for the era. This may have been because his death occurred unexpectedly, whether it was by uh, medical malady or murder. Right. And he was kind of like unceremoniously shoved into a tomb meant for someone else. Now, your tomb would usually be built during your lifetime, but no one expected him to die so young. Right. So. Didn't have very long to build it. Yeah, and there was um, kind of a rule that you had to be mummified, buried, all that good stuff within 70 days. So they couldn't just build the tomb after. Oh, right. Even if he was a mummy, which he would have been preserved, he could have just hung out. You had to do it within that time. We got to seal this thing up. Anubis has got a schedule to keep. 
In olden times, the tomb looked to have been robbed more than once. So this is like back closer to Tut's era uh-huh. than ours. But based on the items taken, which included less valuable things like perishable oils and perfumes, the robberies likely took place closer to the initial burial. And they never made it into the deeper tomb where the real good stuff was kept. Ah. They might Mr. not even have known it was a royal tomb because it was so small. Come and get it, Mr. Carter. Mm-hmm. The location of his tomb was eventually lost because it was buried by debris from subsequent tombs, and there were also workers' houses built over the entrance, unknowingly. In the Valley of the Kings? Yes. So that brings us to the 1900s, and it starts getting us closer to the alleged curse. There's a bit of history to go into here as well, because it's, I don't know, it's like weird and fun. It's a kind of strange history that I like. Mm -hmm. Um, So if you'll indulge me, Sean, I'm going to elaborate on it a bit. Uh, Yeah, please. I can also dive in a little more in a mini-sode for our Patreon backers. Uh, Get at us if you're interested, but this is going to be um, kind of the main scope of the historical record starting at that time. So throughout the 19th century and into the 20th, there was kind of like mummy fever throughout Europe. Yeah. (laughs) It was really an obsession of the people of the day. The mystical power of mummies really transfixed people back then as much as it does today. It was all about the paranormal side of it. And this was around the same time, like, spiritualism was going crazy, right? Sure, yeah. But even before that. But, like, spiritualism had a lot to do with Egyptology, but we'll talk about that. And theosophy happening Mm -hmm. around the same era. Well, that's how we got tarot was um, after some of the early 1900s, I believe it was the 1900s, um, discoveries. So... Yeah. That that we received tarot, you know, right. in the West. So everybody was looking for answers at this time. Yeah, it was either then or in the 1800s, but it was pretty recent. So anyway, mummies were used in medicine for a couple of centuries, back when we had no clue what we were doing. Mm-hmm. This was referred to as mummia. Sorry? Uh, mummia, I think. M-U-M-M-I-A? Yes, or 1M, M-U-M-I-A. I I think that's a villain from uh, Thundercats, but I'll take your (laughs) word for it. So basically, discoveries of mummies at this point were so common that people were just grinding them up and using the powder paste as a remedy for wounds, fractures, or even in a superstitious drink to ward off disease or evil. It was thought that the paste was especially good for like binding and mending skin or broken bones. Pretty, pretty gross. Pretty gross, yeah. This was so popular that a market popped up in the manufacture and sale of fraudulent mummies, a.k.a. (laughs) Mummia Falsa. Use of mummia started to wane in the 18th century because we were learning more about medicine. And we were like, maybe this corpse dust isn't great to slather on our open wounds. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, good call. But there was a popular pigment called mummy brown used in painting and decorating until the early 20th century because there was a decline in the supply of available mummies. Oh, my God. Oh, so until then, it still was made of mummies? Yes. And the the color mummy brown still exists, like, by name, oh, but they just great... make it differently now. I, I love that, pulling that out of my box of Crayolas, mm-hmm. that mummy brown. Mm-hmm. There was one... Um, art shop that still sold ground up mummies in like the 80s 1980s yeah no (laughs) Um, in in the 80s bc yeah so you can find authentic mummy brown used in paintings like eugene delacroix's liberty leading the people 
which is really famous. It's um, like a revolutionary painting. Mm-hmm. You, do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I think I yeah. do, actually. And there's another one called Martin Drolling's um, Interior of a Kitchen, which is very brown. So he must have used a lot of mummy brown. There's like three. There's like three pharaohs on that thing. Yeah. These aren't pharaohs mummies, though. Because <laughs> Everyone got mummified, yes. if you could afford it. That was like the thing to do. So... Once this was done, after post-medicinal and painting usage, people became really obsessed with mummy unwrappings. It was like, you know how people are really interested in unboxing? (laughs) It's like, I'm telling you, it it was the same thing back then. They would have a party or even have an event at a public theater, and they would just unwrap a mummy to see the goodies inside. You in want, front of everyone. You listen, you want to, you YouTubers out there, you want to get some subscribers. <laughs> yeah, I would watch that in a heartbeat, but, you know, I'm weird. <laughs> so then, after this, we had the Napoleonic Wars, which saw the modern beginning of true Egyptology. I'm saying modern as in, like, post-ancient Egyptian times. Right. When Napoleon conquered Egypt, the information up to this time had been given by unprofessional sources like sea captains and missionaries. No one really knew the true history of Egypt. It was all like, oh, I saw this, and it was weird, you know? Yeah. Tombs had been discovered, and they'd certainly been plundered, as we know from all the mummies being ground up. But there wasn't a ton of true understanding as to why they did this, what everything in the tombs meant, all that good stuff. Hieroglyphs hadn't even been deciphered yet. Right. But Napoleon wanted to change that. So whatever perspective you have of him, he was a really smart dude, and he was a big history nerd. He brought all kinds of artists, historians, scientists, and more um, along with him on a trip to Egypt to really understand the surroundings and the history and get everything recorded. Tiny man, big monuments. Just like Poe. All the (laughs) monuments he leaves outside in the grass. Oh, boy. So... They published their findings, and it was the first time the West had seen Egypt accurately depicted. Before then, it was just all hearsay. Then they also brought back collections and artifacts, and these really helped capture the minds of those in France and beyond, because you could, like, see things now, and you could touch them. So this is when Egyptomania truly began. After the Rosetta Stone was found and hieroglyphs were finally translated, excavation began in earnest. So unless I'm mistaken, the treasures found at the tombs were either fully or in part allowed to go back to the countries of those who found them. So they were either allowed to take some or all. I'm not quite sure. Who, and I who, think there there was controversy over this at the time. The country, which is whoever, it's just finders keepers on the mummies? I think partially, at least for exhibition. Well, sure. I guess you got to make paint out of them. Yeah. <laughs> well, at this point, it was more about museums and and exhibition and seeing them and maybe unwrapping them i don't know ain't that a bitch though you go through the whole um process and difficulty and expense and of someone just grinds it up yeah like a corn shucker you're embalming yourself so it'll last forever right it's a bummer yep so these goods were in high demand and everyone was diving in because they really especially wanted the prestigious finding credit they wanted to be the one who found the cool stuff right um So at this time, the bust of Nefertiti, which is a famous art piece, and I'm sure most of our listeners have seen it once in their lives, was found by a German archaeological company, and it was taken to Berlin to display. So this all cues us up for the discovery of Tut's tomb and the main part of our story. Mm -hmm. Enter Howard Carter. Right. 
So we're st- we have to start with why were they there in the first place? Did they know who they were looking for? Did they know what they were going to find? Mm-hmm. Carrie, why were they there in the first place? We'll dive in after the break, Sean. Oh. I want to take a moment to tell you about my podcast, Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage. In 1984, a woman named Phyllis Cottle was abducted in broad daylight, tortured, and left to die in a burning car in Akron, Ohio. At the time, I was a rookie reporter covering this horrific story. Since then, I've reported every kind of crime imaginable. I've been able to leave most of them at work, but not this one. The one that buried itself under my skin and stayed put. Phyllis Cottle was a badass woman, and I want to tell you her story. A production of Evergreen Podcasts and signature title of the Killer Podcast Network. You can find Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage wherever you get your podcasts. Discover more great true crime and paranormal programming at KillerPodcast.com. You're here, which means you love podcasts. But are you looking for another kind of entertainment on the go? Audible is the leading provider of spoken word entertainment and audiobooks, ranging from bestsellers to memoirs, news, business, and more. By signing up for a free trial at www.audibletrial.com slash scary, you'll receive access to thousands of titles with one credit toward any audiobook and two Audible originals, free during your trial and then with subscription each month after. Personally, my favorite Audible title is also my favorite book, It by Stephen King. I went into this audiobook ready to judge because I've loved this novel since I was a kid, but between the stellar production value and the truly breathtaking narration performance by actor Stephen Weber, I was 100% all in. If you like this podcast and have a strong stomach, I think you will be too. Not into audiobooks? No problem. With podcasts, theatrical performances, guided meditations, and more, Audible offers something for everyone. So what are you waiting for? Get started now. And hey, you'll be helping support the podcast. Visit our link at www.audibletrial.com slash ain't it scary for a free trial. That's www.audibletrial.com slash A-I-N-T-I-T-S-C-A-R-Y. Audible. Listen more. Welcome back. Uh, when we last left you, we were in the hot, dusty climbs of Egypt uh, in the early 1900s, and we were about to make a pretty significant discovery. Mm-hmm. So we kind of uh, went through uh, hundreds of years of history to bring us to 1912. Uh, in this year, the Valley of the Kings, where um, most of the tombs had been found, was kind of considered exhausted meaning they thought there was nothing else to find. They did it. Hooray. Yay for us. (laughs) But some people agreed with that assertion. Lord Carnarvon, an English earl, had begun to spend his winters in Egypt in 1903 for health reasons and thus became an enthusiastic amateur Egyptologist. Oh, it's kind of fun. Yeah, you're rich. You're hanging out in Egypt. Why not? What a nice retirement. So he started buying up a lot of antiquities for his collection back in England and because it belongs he had, in my museum. <laughs> yeah, my house museum. Uh, because he had a lot of money to burn, he also began financially sponsoring tomb excavations. 
because he wanted his name attached to a big find. Right. Now, can I just do this in, like, Philadelphia? Excavate tombs? Fund tomb excavations, yeah. Sure, but I think it would be for the, the city, and it would probably be for criminal reasons. Oh. <laughs> well, that just feels more like being a backhoe driver, I guess. Yes. Kind of. (laughs) All right, continue. Well, maybe if you bought the backhoe. So in 1914, he received the concession or exclusive permission uh, to dig in the Valley of the Kings and hired British archaeologist and Egyptologist Howard Carter to head up the work. Now, this guy in my head is a true Indiana Jones (laughs) adventurer archaeologist. Right. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I mean... He's he's kind of a skinny middle-aged British guy, but sure, yeah. Sure, a skinny <laughs> middle-aged British Indiana Jones. Sure, yes, the complete opposite. Yes, Marcus. <laughs> Ew, oof. So <laughs> Howard Carter and his team dug for years in the systematic search of the valley for any tombs missed previously, and they were really concentrating on that of King Tut um, because they thought the full tomb had still not yet been discovered. A couple of pieces had been like here and there, but they were really, you know, lower on the totem pole type pieces. And they didn't really seem like something that would be in the burial tomb. Mm-hmm. Hey, at this point in the uh, search, was there already talk of like mummy curses or is this an idea that kind of originated with King uh, Tut's tomb? I'm going to say yes to both of them. <laughs> what? I'll go into it. Don't you worry. Okay. Despite World War I interrupting, they kept going from 1914 until 1922, when Carnarvon decided it would be the final year he would continue funding the exploration. Maybe this decision prodded the universe into delivering, because late that year they found a curious stone, which ended up being the top of a flight of steps cut into the bedrock. Oh. The steps were dug out to reveal a doorway covered in hieroglyphs and the name of Tutankhamun. Uh, the king had been found. Very cool. <laughs> it has to be a, it's the greatest moment of Howard Carter's life, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. When he sees the stairs get uncovered. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm going to say it right off the bat, because we're at the doorway, right? Uh, according to my research, the writings on the tomb door did not include an actual written curse against any of those who disturbed Tut's tomb. Death will come on swift wings. Nope. None of that. It's pretty popular lore that there was some such seal on the tomb, but it doesn't look like it. Wow. So I'll get into why this became fact a little bit later in our story. Alternative facts. (laughs) So they find the stairway and the door, and Carter sends for Carnarvon back in England because he didn't want to open the tomb without the sugar daddy present. I mean, this is is what he's been paying for is this moment. Right. Right. So Carnarvon arrived at the dig site on November 23rd, along with his daughter, Lady Evelyn Herbert, who was, I think, 21 at the time. She's very young and happens to be the namesake and inspiration for the character of Evelyn in the 1999 Mummy film. Oh, look at that. Mm -hmm. Excavation continued, and there was some concern because it was discovered the door had previously been breached and it had been resealed like at least two times. And there was also a robber's tunnel that had existed and had been filled in a long time ago because they, they didn't want all the good stuff to already be gone. They were like, oh, God, have we been scooped? Right. 
Eventually, they reached another door at the end of a tunnel where they made a hole in to look inside. Carter was the first to take a peek, and Carnarvon asked him, Can you see anything? To which Carter famously replied, Yes, wonderful things. <laughs> and wonderful they were, Sean. It's boobs. It's boobs as far as the eye can see. And pizzas. <laughs> well, maybe oh, the pizzas. Was, not pizzas, but maybe boobs on statues. There was gold everywhere he could look, and he caught glimpses of statues and strange animals. So he was over the moon. Everyone was really excited. The tomb, of course. <laughs> yeah. The tomb was officially opened a few days later on November 29th, 1922, and the excavation team worked through to December 27th when the first item was removed. So they were very, very careful, and they cataloged everything, which is why it took them forever to finish. On February 16th, 1923, the burial chamber was opened, soon followed by the opening of the sarcophagus when they found his mummy. Uh-huh. And then they jumped on YouTube and did their uh, unwrapping <laughs> video. Oh, yeah. Some disagreements with the Egyptian government and yada, yada, yada later. And the last objects were removed from the tomb on November 10th, 1930, which was eight years after the initial discovery. The mummy, too? Yes. It's really hard to overstate the incredible value of what Carter and Co. discovered. Mm -hmm. uh, though Tut wasn't an especially important king, given his short reign, his tomb was the only royal burial ever found intact in modern times. Yeah. That's, that's, uh, that's it's pretty wild. Well, except the missing perfume. Right. But, I mean, all the good stuff, basically. They don't give a shit about the perfume at this point. <laughs> But Carrie, what about the perishable oils? <laughs> Egyptologists really learned a ton from this tomb in particular because all of the pieces were there. It was a complete puzzle. Not to mention that there were tons of gold, jewelry, paintings, furniture, all the good stuff, including the most famous item, which was the golden funeral mask of King Tut. Mm -hmm. So... Our listeners have seen that. You definitely have. It is In the... In fact, when, when we said the word Egypt, you either thought yes. of that mask. Pyramids or, yes. or, yeah, it's iconic. So everyone's happy, right? Yeah, why, it sounds like it. Why the curse? No, nah, no curse. Everything went great. They all lived happily ever after. <laughs> I mean, if there wasn't truly a seal proclaiming doom unto those who entered the tomb, why is there a legend about it? Yeah, I don't know. Some really <laughs> suspicious things would have had to befall some of the people involved in order for any kind of a story like that to take place. I haven't heard of anything like that. Maybe. The concept of a curse on a mummy's tomb goes as far back to the Arab peoples of the first century AD in Egypt. Hmm. And these people believed that the mummy could come to life and attack anyone who broke into a pharaoh's tomb. Okay. Sound familiar? Uh, the Disney original uh, film Under Wraps? Is that what you're <laughs> leading me to? Uh, classic. Because the language wasn't well known, that's the hieroglyphs, it became a common misunderstanding because there was no one to correct it. No one understood what things actually said. Right. Even as bar far back as the 16th century, written legends surrounding mummy curses abounded. Like after the 1571 Battle of Lepanto, when the Holy League defeated the Turkish fleet. This is all Greek to me, but it was a big <laughs> battle, apparently. Sure, of course. This unexpected defeat created the rumor that the Turks had been doomed by having a mummy aboard one of their ships. Why? 
Because there's a curse on a mummy. No, why did they have a mummy? I don't know. You're just hanging out with a mummy. Why not? It's like a fun mascot. <laughs> yeah. Was he a figurehead? <laughs> Stapled to the front of the boat. <laughs> this kind of rumor also circulated as recently as the sinking of the Titanic. That there was a mummy on the ship being transported. It was cursed. And that's why the Titanic sank. Now that is the Titanic movie. That I want, and not just that, like it sinks because it's cursed, but the mummy actually rises, Boris 100%. Karloff style, and strangles the captain and steers into falls an in love with a nice rich girl, and yes, paint me like one of your one of your Egyptian mummies. <laughs> this idea was floating around in the ether before and during the opening of the tomb, like the idea of a mummy's curse. It, it's been around. And then Lord Carnarvon suddenly died. Uh, the one, the one with health problems. Well, he he had you know stuffy British man in the 1900s health problems. He probably had something like asthma. Mm-hmm. He was directed to go to a warmer climate, and because he was rich, he could do it. But he wasn't like sickly. In late March 1923, Carnarvon suffered a severe mosquito bite which he later slashed accidentally while shaving. What? Yeah, he cut, I guess because the skin was raised, he cut it. The cut bite became infected, which resulted in blood poisoning that progressed to pneumonia. What? I know, I've never heard of that progression either. But um, he died on April 5th. This guy needs to get to a warmer climate. (laughs) It's too warm, there are mosquitoes, not good. The frenzy began. So remember when I mentioned that it became lore that the tomb had a written curse on it? Yeah. And that you thought it did in the first place? Yeah, I did. I I think I remember reading it in a book Mm -hmm. that I read as a child about King Tut. Well, that's because this very thing was reported by many newspapers as a fact, especially after Carnarvon's death. Uh... Now, why would they do that? Just print fake news. Sell newspapers? Yes, Yes, but it also seems to be jealousy and uh, a little annoyance as well. At at this guy for funding this cool expedition or for finding an awesome mummy or what was their problem? <laughs> well, Carnarvon only gave the Times exclusive access to the excavation. Oh, Jesus. Uh, that include pictures, um, interviews, all that good stuff. And a lot of other newspapers were then angered by their lack of access because the story was extremely popular with the public. They wanted the interviews and the pictures and all the good stuff. So they just started making shit up. Good. I, you know what? That's, that's one way to prove you're the better newspaper. <laughs> one newspaper even claimed that the following curse had been written in hieroglyphs by the entrance to the tomb. They who enter this sacred tomb shall swift be visited by wings of death. Just made that up. No record of this phrase anywhere on the report of Tut's tomb, and really no obvious reason why it would have been covered up if it did exist. Another reporter expanded on a real inscription on a statue of Anubis to create their own written curse. (laughs) The original text on the statue was, It is I who hinder the sand from choking the secret chamber. I am for the protection of the deceased. Sure. Pretty pretty nice, you know. It's not saying he's going to kill you, right? It's no, just... he actually didn't say anything about people. He said he was hindering the sand. Mm-hmm. And he b- failed, by the way, because they had to dig that thing out for like a day. 
So nice to go in Anubis. Well, maybe there wasn't any in it, just against the door, because it, it was down. The stairs were down into it, underground. Great job, Anubis. <laughs> the reporter just decided to add to this inscription, and I will kill all those who cross this threshold into the sacred precincts of the royal king who lives forever. What? So he just like, yes, and did the Anubis statue. <laughs> That's a big ad. Yeah, I mean, you know what, Sean? I'm glad we have more trustworthiness in the news nowadays. Yeah, there's certainly no, all of it's trustworthy. You, you can just go on the internet and suck up all that truth out there. In August 1980, so this is later, Richard Adamson, who was a military policeman um, that spent years sleeping in the tomb to guard it, told the Daily Mail that the curse had been proposed by a journalist at the time of excavation, and the archaeologists had not done anything to prevent the story. Because it meant fewer disturbances for them for their work and um, made tomb robbery less likely. Sure. Like, yeah, sure, whatever. If everyone's afraid of the tomb, they're not going to break in. Yeah. Whatever the case, Carnarvon's seemingly random death ignited a curse firestorm with Sir Arthur Conan Doyle himself even suggesting that Carnarvon's death had been caused by, quote, elementals created by Tutankhamun's priest, priests to guard the royal tomb. <laughs> He was a doofus. Arthur Conan Doyle also thought those fairy photos were real. Yeah, well. It, it's why um, Houdini stopped being friends with him. I didn't know about Houdini. I knew about the fairy photos. Yeah, when he was like, he was pub very publicly like, these fairy photos are real. And Houdini was like, you sound like a lunatic. And they like stopped being friends because nice. of it. Well, Carnarvon's gone. But who else was supposedly victim to the curse? Let's go down the list, Sean. Apparently the real first victim, even before Lord Carnarvon himself, was Carnarvon's pet canary. Uh, like, like coal mine style? <laughs> yes. Unfortunately, the birdie was eaten by a cobra who had slithered its way into Carnarvon's apartments on the very day the tomb was opened. No, not coal mine style. I mean, it was a pet canary. Yeah, but they're not supposed to be there to protect you from rattlesnakes. No. The cobra is symbolic to the Egyptian monarchy and is believed in the supernatural sense um, that the royal cobra was released in Carter's home as a symbol of how the king strikes his enemies. So this is what began local rumors that a curse had been released even before the Lord's untimely death. That's how Egyptian curses roll. They just kill people's pet birds. It was like the, the warning shot. <laughs> Listen, not, to not even your bird is safe. Not to dip back into Bob Breyer, but uh, at Egyptian marketplaces, they were selling like like mummified cats by the thousands <laughs> for, for sacrifices. This is one of the ones that you will get if you're looking up a list of King Tut's curse victims. I know. I just don't think they would have seen murdering a bird as a big deal, but, but go ahead. Okay. Well, if you don't care about birds, Sean. I let's, care about let's birds. Let's go to another of Carnarvon's pets. I like birds. <laughs> It's widely rumored that Carnarvon's dog, Susie, who had remained on his estate in England, apparently let out a mournful howl at the moment of his death and promptly died herself. While the dog did die on that date, uh, it's unknown how legit the claims of the actual time of death howl were. <laughs> sure. So it is weird. It's a weird coincidence, but I don't know about the mournful howl marking the moment of his expiration in another country. 
Oh, so it's like um, it's like John Adams and Thomas Jefferson. Yes. <laughs> the, the dog is like... <laughs> yeah, Carnarvon dies, Susie lives. <laughs> Susie still lives. <laughs> nope. Also, also, speaking of Carnarvon's death, at the time of his passing, there was a widespread blackout in Cairo. This is true and was definitely fuel for the legend, but it seems that blackouts were apparently pretty common in Cairo at the time. Ah. I, I bet they're not that uncommon now. Probably. So let's get off let's get off the Carnarvon train here, okay? Howard Carter's friend, Sir Bruce Ingham, saw his home burn down. Carter had get, given Ingham a paperweight made of a mummified hand, not Tut's, just a different one, I guess. As you do, I guess. <laughs> and on its wrist, it was wearing a scarab bracelet, apparently reading, Cursed be he who moves my body, to him shall come fire, water, and pestilence. This one doesn't even make sense. On the, on the mummy hand's wrist? It was a bracelet. How is a, a disembodied hand? I think it was in some sort of glass case. Oh, okay. Okay. That was your question? Yeah. <laughs> okay. How was the bracelet staying on? Well, to him shall come fire, water, and pestilence. His home burned down. He tried to rebuild. The home was again destroyed, this time by a flood. Okay. So. Swamp castle situation. Yeah. And pestilence. I don't know. Did Maybe, he get I, sick? Did I don't he, know. Did, I didn't. I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Then, George J. Gould, a visitor to the tomb, died in the French Riviera on May 16th after developing a fever following his visit. Then, British archaeologist Hugh Evelyn White visited the tomb and may have helped excavate the site. He hung himself in 1924, but not before supposedly writing, possibly in his own blood, I have succumbed to a curse which forces me to disappear. And... There's mixed reception online as to whether he really thought his friends were being cursed. Mm -hmm. um, but some some reputable sources said he thought that there was a curse coming and he decided to kill himself um, before it could get him. Then A.C. Mace, a member of Carter's excavation team. Here's a question. The curse so far when it's gotten people has killed them. In, like, pretty run-of-the-mill ways. Mm-hmm. So, why are you so... You're, you're worried about, uh, like, how did Carnarvon die? Blood poisoning that led to pneumonia. Yeah, I mean, that sounds not pleasant, right? Mm-hmm. But is it so terrifying that you're like, I need to hang myself before the uh, uh, infected pimple can get to me? <sighs> I don't know. A.C. Mace, a member of Carter's excavation team, died in 1928 from arsenic poisoning. Okay. Then Captain Honorable Richard Bethel, uh, Carter's secretary, died in 1929 as a victim of a suspected smothering. Okay. <laughs> Soon, Do we have a list of suspects on this? Um, I don't think... Everywhere I, I read, it said suspected murder or smothering so I think doesn't a, seem like i think a mummy smothered him yeah soon after his death the local nottingham post wrote the suggestion that the honorable richard bethel had come under the curse was raised last year when there was a series of mysterious fires at his home where some of the priceless finds from tutankhamun's tomb were stored 
So fires again, Sean. Okay. Okay. How how many years removed from the finding are we at this point? Um, this was eight years after the initial find. Mm-hmm. Not everything had been dug up yet. This was 1929. Howard Carter himself died over a decade after his find on March 2nd, 1939. Though some have still attributed his death from lymphoma to the curse because he was still relatively young, only 64. It's it's sad, right? It's mm-hmm. definitely sad. Dying of cancer at age 64 in like, what, the 40s? 1939. Um, that doesn't sound, it's, it's not one of those things that makes you really scratch your head. Mm-hmm. Well, that's why some people count him as part of the gang, some don't. He's the main guy. <laughs> if not him, who? Exactly. In his book, An Encyclopedia of Claims, Frauds, Hoaxes of the Occult and the Supernatural, noted skeptic and investigator James Randi wrote that, quote, the average duration of life for those who would have suffered the ancient curse was more than 23 years after the curse was supposed to become effective. Uh-huh. Indeed, within the first 12 years, only eight of the 58 people who were present when the tomb and sarcophagus were opened had died. Right. Yeah. In other words, like it could be a curse, but it's a lame curse. It doesn't doesn't strike often. All ye who enter here will eventually die. Lady Evelyn, who was one of the first people to enter the tomb, lived for a further 57 years after the excavation and died in 1980. But keep in mind, those were just the victims um, that we listed that were present at the start. Was everyone who was in that tomb that day, are they all dead at this point? I believe so, yes. There you go. I think I think she's one of the ones that lived the longest because she was pretty young at the time. I think that's open and shut. We, we have a curse. <laughs> Many of those claimed to be affected by Tut's curse were just later visitors or otherwise related to the excavation or excavators in some way. Ugh, these are the people who like Tom Petty dies and they're like, I listened to his song at my graduation. I'm crushed today. Yes. So you could take Sir Archibald Douglas Reed. He was a radiologist and just x-rayed Tut before the mummy was given to the museum authorities, got sick the next day, and died three days later. Okay. Three. Now, that's a fast acting. It's an actor. <laughs> Tut acting. Apparently, the curse also extended to those related to the find, but not present in any way around it. Some have attributed to the 1966 car accident death of Mohammed Ibrahim, director general of Egypt's Department of Antiquities, to the curse. Ibrahim had been arguing against sending some of the artifacts from the tomb to Paris for an exhibition, but shortly after he changed his mind, he was killed in an accident. His successor, Gamal Merez, gloated, I'm living proof it was all a coincidence. And... Died four weeks later of circulatory collapse at the age of 52. (laughs) This was also the day that Tut's golden funeral mask was packed for shipping to London for an exhibit marking the 50th anniversary of the tomb's discovery. So maybe the curse marks anniversaries, too. Who knows? Maybe it's sentimental. (laughs) Who was the last person to, uh, to whose death was attributed to this mummy? Oh, I'm still going. 
Lord Carnarvon's son said in 1977 that while he neither believed in the curse nor disbelieved it, he would not accept a million pounds to enter the tomb of Tutankhamun in the Valley of the Kings. Very dramatic, Carnarvon Jr. (laughs) Relax. Now, you might not know this, but the curse was even the subject of an early 80s lawsuit. Who do they sue? Too dang common? <laughs> Lieutenant George Labrash was the guard for an exhibit of treasures from Tut's tomb at San Francisco's Golden Gate Park when he suffered a stroke. Labrash sued San Francisco's retirement board after 24 years with the police department for an $18,400 disability payment due to being cursed by Tut, which is what <laughs> caused his stroke in early retirement. Uh huh. But the Superior Court judge presiding dismissed the suit, literally writing that, if anything, by guarding the remains, Labrash had protected them from desecration. And if curses are real, would have been doing the opposite of what Tut would have found to be curseable. So again, enemy of my enemy is my friend. See, I don't like this. I'm a uh, Egyptian curse originalist, and I don't think uh, legislators or judges should be weighing in <laughs> on, on whether what, it exists on what our founding pharaohs meant <laughs> with their words. Sean, some have gone so far as to posit that there is a sort of curse on Tut's tomb, but it's rather medical. In 2002, (laughs) well, French scientist Sylvain Gendon suggested that Carnarvon's death could have been caused by an infection, by something like anthrax. And spores of that could have been present in the tomb because it had caused the fifth and sixth plagues of Egypt. Anthrax? Mm Mm-hmm. Really? That's what I read. Someone just mailed a bunch of white powder to uh, Akhenaten? You don't have to mail it. It could just exist. (laughs) Or it could have been a deadly fungus that had made its home in the tomb. Or hookworms. Or maybe contact with a poison found in decor in the tomb, like arsenic or mercury. Well, it could have been any of those things. But if it was, why didn't it kill more people? That's why all of these opinions seem a little wonky. (laughs) Yeah. According to the book The Curse of King Tut by William W. Lace... One of the most recent accounts of the curse striking may have occurred in 2006. A team of radiologists were studying Tut's mummy when they began to encounter all sorts of issues. Issues? (laughs) Yeah. Like like male pattern baldness or... Yeah. Well, Dr. Ashraf Salim of the Kassir Eleni Teaching Hospital stated, while poor... While performing the CT scan, we had several strange occurrences. The electricity suddenly went out, the CT scanner could not be started, and a team member became ill. If we weren't scientists, we might have become believers in the curse of the pharaohs. (laughs) If we weren't scientists. Right. Well, speaking of scientists, Dr. Mark Nelson at Monash University in Australia did an actual study in 2002 of the curse. Okay. He listed 44 people, all European or American, who were in Egypt at the time of the tomb's discovery. 25 of those people had been exposed at some point to the tomb or the mummy directly, and 11 had not been exposed. Okay. I don't know about the rest of them. I don't know if they were a control group. The the math doesn't add up. Well, it seems like they're just not exposed would have been the control group. I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. No significant difference in the lifespan of the two groups was found. 
with the average age of death in both groups being over 70 years. Nelson wrote, An Egyptian archaeological dig in the 1920s was inhabited by interesting characters, and it was this and the circumstances of the archaeological find of the modern age that has kept the myth of the mummy's curse in the public eye. I found no evidence for its existence. Perhaps finally it, like the tragic boy king Tutankhamun, may be put to rest. So he's saying, yeah, some of them had interesting deaths. They were pretty interesting guys. Yes, exactly. So that wraps up our discussion of the Tut-specific curse. Mm -hmm. But he's not the only Egyptian mummy to have a reported curse on his tomb and remains, Sean. No, I heard about one that sunk the whole Titanic. (laughs) Let's quickly chat about a few. Well, there's Imhotep, famously portrayed by <laughs> Imhotep by Sir Boris Karloff. He's a knight, right? Was he? No, of no. course he's not British. Well, I don't know. He had, he had a face about him. I don't know. <laughs> now, I said that Tut's tomb had no curse sealed on it, and that's true. This doesn't mean they were never written on tombs, though. They most frequently did occur on or in the private tombs of the Old Kingdom era. Anktifi, who was basically an Egyptian governor in like the 9th to 10th dynasty. Put that in your back pocket for baby girl names. Continue. Oh, Anktifi. He had a warning on his tomb stating, Any ruler who shall do evil or wickedness to this coffin, may Heman not accept any goods he offers, and may his heir not inherit. Fuck yeah. (laughs) It's very specific. Another tomb from around the same era contained the inscription... As for all men who shall enter this my tomb in pure, there will be judgment. An end shall be made for him. I shall seize his neck like a bird. I shall cast the fear of myself on him. And you know that was so long in hieroglyphs. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah it's it's, uh, it's four miles long, <laughs> yes. the, the wall. So he was like, I'm going to seize your neck. I'm going to do all these specific things. I'm going to write it all down so you know mm-hmm. how I'm going to come at you. Curses post-Old Kingdom are less common, though somehow more severe than the whole I'll seize the neck, I'll cast the fear type of stuff. Okay. Are we getting into really? Yeah, okay. (laughs) One example cited by current archaeologist and Egyptologist Zahi Hoas read, Cursed be those who disturb the rest of a pharaoh. They that shall break the seal of this tomb shall meet death by a disease that no doctor can diagnose. Ooh, specific. I'm unsure if he's just giving the general gist of, like, the curses he's seen or if it's from an actual tomb he discovered. Now, just to be clear, his tomb wasn't opened in 2019 in Wuhan, China, was it? (laughs) No. No, that was a whole different can of worms that was opened. Speaking of Zahis Hawass, as a young archaeologist, he had to transport several artifacts from the Greco-Roman site of Kom Abu Bilo. Probably saying that wrong. It sounded good. <laughs> that day, his cousin died. His uncle died on the first anniversary of that day. And on the third anniversary, his aunt died. I guess death took a vacation on the second anniversary. This is like the saddest Arabian Nights story. Where is this going? <laughs> Years later, when Hawass excavated the tombs of the builders of the pyramids at Giza, he encountered this curse. All people who enter this tomb, who will make evil against this tomb and destroy it, may the crocodile be against them in water, and snakes against them on land. May the hippopotamus be against them in water, the scorpion on land. Okay. We're getting all the animals involved. Anything else in water? 
No, just the crocodile and the hippo. Anything else on land? Just the snakes and the scorpions. Okay. All right. I think I can deal with this curse. <laughs> just don't go to a desert. <laughs> Though not superstitious, Hawass decided not to disturb the mummies in the pyramid. He's <laughs> just erring on the side of caution there. Sure. Who wants to have to deal with a hippopotamus? <laughs> and they're going to come against you? What do they do? It will be against you? It's going to be against you in water. Just not going to vibe you. That's all. Or really vibing you. What if it just means like physically going <laughs> to no. be, be against you? Ew. He was later involved in the removal of two child mummies from Baharia Oasis to a museum and reported he was haunted by those children in his dreams. The dreams did not stop until the mummy of the father was reunited with the children's mummies within the museum. Mm. If you grave robbed an ancient child... I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I'd sleep like a baby. What are you kidding me? <laughs> I would never have nightmares about that. <laughs> you'd have, you'd have ec- ecstatic dreams for the rest of your life. Just chasing that dragon of, of grave robbing those babies. <laughs> so this led Hawass to conclude that mummies should not be displayed. Um, but he did feel it was a lesser evil to display them than allow the general public into the tombs because that damages them over time. The tombs. Yes. I mean, even if you're extremely careful, just breathing in a tomb or sunlight in a tomb um, damages everything, like the paint, everything. But you can go to King Tut's tomb, right? I think you still can, but I think they do limit the um, days of the year because um, they want everything to be preserved. There's pictures for like the last 20 years where it's disintegrated um, further, so... Hawass also recorded an incident of a sick young boy who loved ancient Egypt and was subject to a miracle cure in the Egyptian museum when the boy looked into the eyes of the mummy King Amos I. And um, and yeah, he, w- he was sick and then he was cured. So it's the opposite of a curse. The mummy's miracle. It's like uh, a saint. Okay, so this is an anti-curse. Yeah. He said he's, he's seen it all. He's seen the curses. He's seen the dreams. He's seen the miracles. The hippopotamus will come come against you in the water. The cure will come against you when sick. <laughs> yes. The oh, idea thank you, cure. Curse. <laughs> the idea of mummies reanimating from the dead has been around forever, at least uh, since, as I mentioned, the first century AD. But the, uh, the idea of reanimating from the dead as a mummy uh, has also existed in literature for a pretty long time, comparatively with Little Women writer Louisa May Alcott possibly being the first to use a fully formed mummy's curse plot <laughs> in her 1869 story Lost, Little in Women. A, oh. <laughs> Lost in a Pyramid or The Mummy's Curse. Because uh, they always had like a subhead that you could you could call the book if you want to, mm-hmm, you know. Mm-hmm. This was uh, just rediscovered in the 1990s, this book. Wow. Yeah. Have you read it? No. No, I wasn't a, a Little Women head as a child, so... The idea of a mummy curse made it onto film just 10 years after the discovery of Tut's tomb, which really puts time into perspective because that feels like they would be so far separated. And that's with um, the 1932 universal horror classic, The Mummy, yes, which we heard a clip of at the beginning of the show Mm -hmm. and starred Boris Karloff, as you said. Sir Boris Karloff, yes. (laughs) As the ancient Egyptian mummy, Imhotep. Mm Mm-hmm. Since then, we've had sequels to that one. We've had Abbott and Costello meet the mummy because yep. you got to get them in there. 
we've had one of one of several <laughs> horror uh, spinoffs. We oh, that's a Patreon episode. Abbott and Costello horror films. Oh, anyway, sorry, yeah, keep so going. Good. Well, you write that one. Um, we've had Hammer Films versions of the same stories. We've had the remake series with rough Fraser. remake, yes, with Brendan Fraser and the ill-fated Tom Cruise reboot of 2017. Oh yeah, I can't wait for the rest of the Dark Universe to premiere. <laughs> I think it. Um, I think it smothered it to death. We've even had one of our favorite songs, Sean, the beautiful song The Curse by Josh Ritter, which tells of a reanimated mummy and a different kind of mummy's curse. Long ago on the ship, she asked why pyramids. He said, think of them as an immense invitation. She asked, are you cursed? He said, I think that I'm cured. Then he kissed her and hoped that she'd forget that question. I see you getting into your feelings just thinking about it. No, I'm actually, we heard a clip there. Oh. Uh, and I did get into my feelings. <laughs> The concept of the mummy rising from the dead has entranced audiences and storytellers for centuries. And if little old me were to analyze it a bit, it's likely because as time has gone on, we become more and more removed from the dead. Um, like that being the actual corpse of a person. It used to be that you used to have them sitting in your house, you used to dress them yourselves. But um, the whole modern funeral business has kind of done away with that. A mummy is more than an artifact. It's an existing body of someone where you can usually still see the pieces of humanity in it. The face and limbs and the features, and you could relate to it. But it also forces us to reckon with death right there with us, sometimes in the same room. And I think that subconsciously makes us as humans pull away into fantasy. Because if you're thinking of it as a someone who's afraid of death, like many of us are, if a mummy can come back to life, maybe death isn't the end after all. Yeah, I, I, I also think there's this natural inclination to be like, well, look at how elaborate this is. Look at all of this ritual. It has to be for something. There has to be some power here. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a little terrifying to admit that maybe... They were also just scared of dying, yeah. like we are. Yeah. So, Sean, do you believe in King Tut's curse? I know I the answer. Ask if I believed in death. <laughs> um, no. So, no. Sean, do you believe in God? The, oh, boy. Minisode. Um, it, that's a short minisode. I don't. Um, <laughs> they, <laughs> um, no, I don't believe in uh, King Tut's curse. Uh, I do love this topic. Um, I love Egyptology. I, I love it. So anything that makes that subject more exciting and gets people um, excited about it, I think is great. Um, but yeah, I, I don't think I think the Egyptians were um, terrified to die and, and thought they were doing uh, their best shot of, of getting another crack at life. I don't know if they were necessarily more terrified than anyone is at any time in history. Um... But they definitely, this was their way of dealing with that possibility. Yeah. Ritual has a way of making things easier to digest, you know. Yeah, depending on the time and history, death hasn't always been a scary. I think for medieval serfs, like I think medieval serfs loved uh, loved a good Christian uh, allegory because 
Um, life was horrible and <laughs> so painful. So at least they had something to look forward there to was and a reward. it had meaning. Yeah. yeah, there's a reward at the end of, the, of your horrible, painful life. Now we kind of like our lives <laughs> for right. the most part. Well, yeah, most part. I mean, we're very lucky. But um, yeah, I mean, I'm not totally out on the idea of curses. I, I think that a lot of it can be psychological and that if someone believes and you and you say i cast a curse on you and they believe they have a curse on them i think psychologically that's just as good as magic it's the placebo effect mm -hmm. you know um i was also kind of raised with the idea of curses because it's it's really deep in like portuguese superstition and things e like evil that evil eye and all that the evil eye the figish as our one portuguese listener maybe my mom would know what that is um so I'm a little more open to it, but I think in this case, and I wanted it to be true because I think this is the coolest thing in the world. It actually was a lot more tenuous and vague than I thought. Like I remember growing up, reading, like being little, reading those books about King Tut and being like, so many people died and the canary and the dog. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh my God. But um, the real weird one seems to be Lord Carnarvon and it seems to be kind of an... It's definitely unexpected a, freak accident yeah. type of death. It's a freak death for sure. It's but weird. you know, it sounds unpleasant too. Yeah, it sounds horrible. Yeah, I wouldn't hang myself in a bathroom to avoid it, but yeah. So I don't know. I I don't know if I put stock in this one. I wish it was true because I love that idea. I love horror monster movies and love the idea of a mummy just coming back and be like, "Get out of my house." Uh, but I don't think this one. Um, has much to it i cannot believe the death on swift wings inscription was just made up just completely not even part of the anubis statue thing that they like i like how they added an and and da, anubis da, da. will kill you uh, <laughs> and this specific stuff to know i'll kill you um yeah the, that was completely made up and, so, and some people will say oh the egyptian government covered it up why who cares who cares? Who cares? Why would the Egyptian government want to cover I don't up know. the curse? That's what that's my thought because if anything it's more publicity which is good for them. And certainly publicize the fact that you have this power resting in your backyard. Yeah. Watch out for us, we've got curses. Exactly. So I don't know. But um yeah, it was definitely a lot of fun to research even if it did break my heart in the end. <laughs> <laughs> um that's okay. I just love this um I love the romanticized idea of this uh, boom period in archaeology in the like turn of the century. Uh, oh, I love through that. The 30s. Anything though... Indiana Jonesy, you know, we were watching Last Crusade on Christmas because that's a weird tradition in my family um, since I was a kid to watch that movie specifically on Christmas Day. And uh, the floor's on fire. <laughs> that, that I mean, I don't even care. It's better than Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's not. It is. Um, I just love... Just it's just the, not. It's a creakier movie. The it, sweaty, it has sandy more moving parts. It doesn't energy. It's, it's just not as good, but it's funny. You're crazy. Uh, anyway. I, yeah. Just the idea of that adventuring spirit. Um, I think a lot of our s discoveries nowadays are really scientific and even digital, less hands-on. Well, we're, we, we're learning less about history um, in a weird way, like less... Less big things, I feel like. Well, we've already found so much of the shit. Yes, exactly. And we're still making strides. We're still finding stuff. But I hope we have the next huge find of, his of history and things like that. But until then, I'll always be a little nostalgic for this kind of mysterious, fun era of discovery. Yeah, fun if you're...
if you were one of the white people watching other yes, white people yes. take all of these other countries' yes. cultures away oh, from yeah. them. Oh, I, yeah. I think, I think a lot of it is horrible. It, I'm just talking about the discovery part, not the oh, plundering totally. their goods and wealth part. Oh, right. But 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 the idea of that, history. But that's why I said the romanticist, like the idea of it, the Indiana it's Jones very of it all colonial. is so fun and cool. Well, but yeah, but, but, it's, also but it's problematic. White colonialism, yes. yeah. But if you just think of it as an Indiana Jones movie, it's kind of fun. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and um, the Egyptian government has a lot of those. Um, yeah, they finally got a lot of that back, so that's good. Like King Tut is in, is in Egypt, isn't he? Or is he at the British Museum? <sighs> I don't know. He was actually, I think he was supposed to tour this year because I did look it up, if you remember. Um, I think he was going to come to Boston or something. I put our names on the list. That's and right. that he, didn't he, happen. He's touring with Steve Martin, isn't that right? Yes. Uh, yeah, he's the opening act, though. It's kind of awkward. Tutankhamun is? Yeah, to Steve Martin's banjo Oh boy, stuff. To, to so much younger a man. <laughs> Must hurt. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not. It's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Lots of things are a struggle right now. School, work, even something as simple as going to the grocery store. It could feel overwhelming. But one thing that shouldn't be overwhelming is accessing mental and emotional care. That's where BetterHelp comes in. BetterHelp is the leader in online counseling with over 4,000 licensed counselors on the site and over 500,000 people who have gotten counseling to date. The mission of BetterHelp is to make professional counseling accessible, affordable, and convenient, so anyone who struggles with life's challenges can get help anytime, anywhere. I've been using BetterHelp for the better part of this year, and honestly, I don't know how I would have gotten through 2020 without it. And, of course, Sean and Poe. When I need to talk to my counselor, I can just text her and I can schedule chats, phone calls, or video calls for longer sessions. This means I have flexibility to set a session during the week, or during busy weeks, I can just shoot her a message here and there when I have time. Take control of your mental and emotional well-being. BetterHelp is a great place to start. For 10% off your first month's subscription of BetterHelp, go to our podcast link at www.betterhelp.com slash and see how good it can feel to push past the struggle and find hope in a new day. That's www.betterhelp.com slash A-I-N-T-I-T-S-C-A-R-Y for 10% off your first month of BetterHelp. Get professional counseling anytime, anywhere, because you deserve to be happy. It's time for some prime and punishment. (gasps) This is where we talk crimes and then we talk primes. (laughs) Well, Sean, this story won't be very fun, but as a podcast that covers about a third true crime stories, it felt incorrect to skip over it. So here it is. On Christmas Day, a bomb detonated inside an RV parked in downtown Nashville, Tennessee. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Three people were injured and dozens of buildings were damaged, but luckily the only death was the alleged suicide bomber himself, 
named Anthony Quinn Warner. Yeah, this was interesting. This guy doesn't sound to me... He's obviously a crazy person, mm-hmm. and uh, I'm not getting behind what he did at all. This is bad. This is bad stuff. Yeah. Um, it doesn't sound like he wanted to hurt any, if many, if any, people. Right. Officers responding to reports of gunshots in the area at 6 a.m. found a parked camper van outside of an AT&T facility broadcasting over loudspeaker a warning message to leave the area. So if this was something, someone trying to take out a bunch of people along with him, doesn't seem like that makes sense. <laughs> the van also broadcasts the hit 1964 song Downtown by singer Petula Clark. Kaboom. Yeah, that's friggin' chilling in context. I think any kind of happy-go-lucky song mixed with something really creepy is great in the movie and horrible in real life. Yeah. Um, so this is the this guy is the only one who died in this explosion, right? Mm-hmm. A few minutes after these broadcasts, around 6.30 a.m., the van exploded, knocking one officer off their feet with the force because they were kind of still close by. Despite the destruction caused by the bombing, no one but Warner, who was inside of the RV during the detonation, was killed. Tony Warner was identified through tips from the public, and then this was later confirmed by DNA found at the scene. Because when you're inside an exploding RV, your DNA You're just DNA. (laughs) Your DNA is everywhere. But that's all there is. Uh, He had apparently put his affairs in order the past month, quitting his job and transferring ownership to his home to a Los Angeles woman who wasn't identified, and I'm sure won't hear more about that. Warner's only previous run-in with authorities was in 1978 when he served two years of probation for felony drug possession. I don't know. At that point, it could have been weed or coke. Like, you don't know. Um, But it didn't seem like he was really a troublemaker at all. He had no obvious political ideology, according to his neighbors, with one longtime neighbor stating, if it was him, he didn't want anybody hurt. But if that's the case, what other message is there? If indeed it was him, I just, I don't know. They have to figure out some kind of motive. Yeah, and that's uh, the only uh, worry I have about even covering this in the news is that this could be outdated. Even by the time it drops, uh, if, if they, because I'm sure. Yes, you know. this news is from December 28th. So this is the most recent thing I had. Yep. And we have, you know, new, new articles every day, sure. you know, but, but there's no manifesto or anything like that. So Not that I've heard of yeah, or no, seen. Nobody knows what this guy wanted. Um, I think it's safe to say he was crazy, though. Well, he was definitely not well. Another neighbor chatted with Warner as he stood at his mailbox on December 21st, that's four days before the explosion, and said Warner told him, oh yeah, Nashville and the world is never going to forget me. The neighbor didn't really think anything of the remark uh, because he thought Warner only meant that something good was going to happen for him (sighs) because they really didn't think anything negative of this guy. He was... You know, kind of nerdy, kind of quiet, kind of an odd duck, but nothing really stood out. Yeah, you know I'm picturing Buffalo Bill from Silence of the Lambs, though. The neighbor um, said he was speechless later when he read that authorities had identified Warner as, as the suspected bomber and that nothing about this guy raised any red flags. He was just quiet. 
So this is definitely a strange one. Um, I feel weird attaching a prime recommendation to this. So for now, we're just going to end it there and we'll keep you updated. It's a sad story. It's a weird story. The uh, song playing before the explosion is the most fun aspect of it. In that it's really, really chilling. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the news. Yeah. This was a fun one, Carrie. <laughs> Sorry. <sighs> Break time. That's it for this episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Ain't It Scary. And check out our website at ain'titscary.com. You can support the show by supporting our sponsors and becoming a patron at www.patreon.com slash scary. And please subscribe to the show and throw us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts because we'll be forever grateful. Yep, and come join us on Patreon. We have all kinds of cool rewards from just a dollar on up. Mm -hmm. And uh, at tier three or higher, you even get to hear your name right here on this podcast, like our friends Nate Curtis, Sean O'Donnell, and Jared Chamberlain. Thanks, guys. We'll see you all next Thursday. Show created by Sean and Carrie McCabe. Music by Kyle Ryan. This has been a production of Longboy Media. Something is creeping in. Don't follow it down. Let me introduce you to Barry Clue, an authorised financial advisor from New Zealand and a very special kind of stain on humanity. He was a very uh, knowledgeable young guy. He was a registered financial advisor. Type of guy that was bending over backwards to help you. Now, you could be forgiven for thinking that Barry sounds like a great guy. And you'd be right. Well, right up until the point when you're wrong. It was all fictitious. You stole from my son, who has a disability. Chris never knew. He died believing that we're all taken care of. A psychopath is somebody who lacks empathy, acts impulsively. I think there's a strong case that Barry might be all of those things, actually. To find out how Barry Clue stole over $15 million from 81 victims, subscribe to Clueless, the long con. That's Clueless, spelt K-L-O-O-G-H-L-E-S-S.